Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Sonia. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Program, Preventing and Managing Infections in Adults Living with Cancer. And we know this is a very important topic for all of you on the call today. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And really because of that collaboration and your interest in the topic today, we have over 335 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, Egypt, France, Germany, India, Israel, Japan, Laos, Philippines, Poland, the UK, and Venezuela. So really a bit of a global call as well. And today's program is supported by Pfizer, and I really want to thank them for their support of the program. Now, before we begin the program with our speakers, I just going to ask you a few questions, um, and uh, it's just going to take a moment. Um, and you're going to, those of you who are live streaming the program will be able to see the questions, and those of you who are not live streaming the program will get the questions um, in the evaluation survey monkey that you get after the program. So the first question is, I know how to watch for, prevent, and manage infection. And if you would just answer yes or no. And the second question is, I understand what antimicrobial infection, or AMR, is. If you would just answer yes or no. And the third question is, I know the role of the pharmacist in infection awareness and control. And again, yes or no. Okay, I really want to thank you all for participating in this brief polling. It gives us an idea of what you know coming into the program. It really helps us to know. And now I'm going to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Jeffrey Crawford. Dr. Crawford is the George Barth Geller Professor for Research in Cancer, Department of Medicine, Duke University School of Medicine. He is co-leader, Solid Tumor Therapeutics Program, principal investigator of NCTN LAPS grant, Duke Cancer Institute. And Dr. Crawford is going to present an overview of infection in prevention and management in people living with cancer in the context of COVID-19. Causes and risk factors for infection, why people living with cancer may be more prone to infection, know your risk of infection, watching for and preventing infection in people living with cancer, the increasing role of telehealth, telemedicine appointments to reduce your exposure to COVID-19, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments to get the most out of these appointments. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Crawford. Car Carolyn, thank you very much for that kind introduction. Uh, I'm going to do my best to cover most of that in the next uh, 10 minutes or so. Um, 
and uh, welcome all of you on this call. I think this is a very important topic. Uh, infection in cancer patients has always been uh, a major problem, but it's never been anywhere close to what it is uh, over the last several months that we've all been living through. So I, I might start just by saying, uh, why is it that cancer patients are uh, more susceptible to infection? What, what's the issue here? And it's really uh, several fold, but most of them in one way or the other has to do with the impact on the immune system. We count on the immune system of our bodies to protect us from bacterial infections, from viruses, from funguses. These are all uh, potential risks for patients with cancer, depending on the situation. Uh, the cancer itself, if the patient has an active cancer, may alter the immune system. It may be uh, particularly in patients who have blood cancers like leukemia or lymphoma or myeloma, where the cells that are um, affected are actually part of the immune system and they're uh, not acting uh, appropriately and may be suppressing other parts of the immune system. So I think uh, the hemologic malignancies or blood cancers are particularly prone um, for risk for infection in those patients. It's also true for solid tumors, and there there may be anatomic reasons. Patients with lung cancer may have a mass in the lung that predisposes them to pneumonia. Uh, other parts of the body may be involved in other situations predisposing to uh, urinary infections, et cetera. So um, the cancer itself is clearly one risk factor. Secondly, we know that cancers tend to occur in older individuals. And with age comes more comorbidities, meaning that as we get older, we're more likely to have diabetes, to have um, heart disease, to have kidney disease, to have chronic lung disease, all of which predispose patients to a greater risk of infection. And then, of course, the, the third thing uh, is treatment. Our cancer treatments all, unfortunately, may put uh, patients at increased risk of infection. So surgery itself by just the operation by penetrating through uh, the skin to remove an organ, all that can predispose for infection. There's some uh, depression of the immune system in the setting of the anesthesia and post-op recovery. So uh, we know that the surgical patient has some increased risk of infection. Um, radiation can also contribute to this in, in some ways in terms of uh, increasing risk. But I think in terms of our standard therapies, the one we think about the most, um, at least I do as a medical oncologist, is, is chemotherapy. So these are cancer drugs that, as you know, are very powerful, and most of which have an effect on the blood cells, particularly the white blood cells, or what we call the neutrophils. And the neutrophils are very important in a host defense against bacterial infection. So when uh, patients on cancer chemotherapy have too low a white blood count, too, too low a neutrophil count, they're at risk of a serious and sometimes life-threatening infection requiring hospitalization and intravenous antibiotics. Now, we do have some uh, guidance around this. We have some medicines that can stimulate the body's uh, bone marrow cells, particularly the white blood cells, to have them recover faster after chemotherapy. And we have guidelines to how to use these what we call growth factors or white cell uh, growth factor stimulants. Uh, and in this uh, era of COVID-19, we've actually relaxed those guidelines further, uh, lowering the threshold so that we can try to minimize the risk in patients who need chemotherapy of giving them something to reduce the possibility of neutropenia and infection post-chemotherapy. 
but that that's clearly a very big area. It's one we've been, been discussing a lot uh, now. Do we delay chemotherapy? Do we alter the dose? Do we give a growth factor? And it's all going to be different depending on the situation the patients are in. Now, fortunately, some of our systemic uh, treatments have less of a risk of infection. Hormonal therapy, uh, what we call targeted therapy, which are agents that are more specific to individual molecular markers in cancer. In general, those don't tend to cause the low white blood count problems and some of the risks on the immune system that we see with chemotherapy. And then, of course, we're in this era of immunotherapy, where immunotherapy is so important to our cancer patients. And immunotherapy by itself doesn't seem to increase the risk uh, in most patients. But unfortunately, as a complication of immunotherapy, many patients get some sort of immune injury or toxicity, and that requires steroids often to treat that or other immunosuppressants, and all of those agents um, can, can increase the risk of infection. So we've really got the cancer itself. We've got uh, other comorbid diseases. We've got various factors in treatment, all of which are putting the cancer patient increased risk for a variety of different infections as they go through active treatment. And then we add into this COVID-19. So uh, a lot has been written about this and talked about and will continue to be for some time. But in one of uh, our guidelines papers in oncology, I was struck by a, a, a quote by one of the authors working on developing guidelines and how we manage uh, patients uh, in this setting. And uh, what was said was, a major consideration in the delivery of cancer care during the pandemic is to balance the risk of patient exposure and infection with the need to provide effective cancer treatment. So we can't stop what we're doing. We can't allow patients who are having active cancer not to get treatment because we're worried about COVID-19. But we have to be smart about how we manage those patients, how we help with the families and what we do. And we also have to be smart on where maybe treatments aren't as urgent. Maybe patients are in follow-up, uh, not on active therapy, only getting scans. Maybe there's room to kind of adjust some of the frequency of some of those scans, as long as it doesn't compromise their care. But every patient situation is different, and everyone requires uh, attention for this. So I think it's also very important to think about this uh, in your own setting. Are you a person with cancer? And if you have cancer, is it an active cancer where you're getting active treatment? Or is it are you a cancer survivor in a setting where the treatment has been in the past and you're being followed? And those are very different risk groups. Obviously, the first group I was talking about are the ones in active treatment. They're at the highest risk of complications of COVID-19, where the patients who have uh, lived and survived through cancer, uh, hopefully are at significantly less risk. But regardless of this, I think what has to happen um, is you have to practice the three W's as we do in North Carolina. You have to wear a mask. You have to wait six feet apart uh, from people around you. You have to wash your hands. Those three W's are very important uh, for you and family and anyone around you to practice on a, on a regular basis. And then I think secondly, you really need to recognize the symptoms. We've talked a lot, a lot about COVID-19, but uh, do we know really what the symptoms are to look for that might make us think we might have that or uh, someone around us might have it? So obviously the common symptoms are fever, a cough, um, either a productive cough or one that's just a dry cough, and then shortens of breath or difficulty catching your breath. Those are very uh, common symptoms of, of COVID-19, less common are headache, body aches, diarrhea, vomiting, 
tiredness, aches, runny nose, sore throat, which could happen with any kind of viral illness. So not very specific, but uh, but something to watch for. And less common, but uh, interestingly, maybe more related are things like loss of smell and loss of taste, which we don't see commonly in uh, many other viral illnesses, but seem to be part of this in a small number of patients. And then, of course, serious complications. Patients can have confusion or disorientation. Um, complications from the early stages can lead to pneumonia, uh, hospitalization, and there a lot of things can happen in terms of organ failure, um, thrombosis, other complications. So that, that's why we see patients who do very, very well, have a mild symptoms and go home and stay home, and others who end up in the hospital with really a life-threatening situation. So recognize the symptoms early on, get tested, or if you recognize the symptoms in someone else, get tested. And that can be very relieving because it may mean that, that you have some other issue unrelated, but getting to know who has COVID-19 and who doesn't around you is very important. Um, and then just in the last minute or two, oh, I'm sorry, the one, one thing I would say about this, this is a very stressful time for all of us, whether you're a provider, a patient, a, a loved one, a caregiver. Uh, we've never been through anything like this. Um, so anything you can do to reduce stress is important. And I think one thing for for most people is to try to get exercise, to try to be active and do things um, to, to make your blood flow and feel better. So if it's walking on a treadmill or if you have an opportunity to walk outside or get some exercise, that, that's, that's very important. And obviously, to stay in touch with those uh, around you. Uh, it may be in person, but it may be by Zoom or telephone or whatever. So surround yourself, virtually at least, with people uh, and stay active. Now, as providers, I'd say things have changed every month for us. We are, we've gone from shutting down our clinics and not doing anything to ramping back up uh, and trying to treat all patients as we did a year ago. But one thing that's that's uh, really impacted our practice that uh, was available a year ago, but we weren't really using it very much, and that's telehealth. Uh, I'd say some people certainly were using it, but many parts of the country weren't. And that's provided a lot more opportunity to connect between providers and patients and family members. So rather than coming into the hospital and having to potentially go through some uh, risk of exposure to many people, uh, before you get to the hospital and through the hospital. Um, if this is mainly a question and answer session or mainly a review of labs or other tests, um, that can also often be done by phone and very effectively, particularly with a video phone where you can actually see each other and make uh, eye contact, which I think is a, a, a very helpful situation. Um, but there are limitations. You can't uh, ex examine the patient very well. I've, I've certainly seen some skin rashes on video and other things, but it's not quite the same. And I think for patients with active uh, cancer getting treatment, uh, I still prefer to see those patients if they're coming into the hospital anyways to get a treatment. Uh, I think it's best to be seen there. But there are many other situations where the telehealth uh, can be useful and uh, hopefully allay uh, anxiety and stress that you may be having. And in particular, I think um, one of the things that you can do is, is make a list of questions you have when uh, your telehealth visit is coming up. And I think your provider is probably in the best position to put your situation in a very particular context. So if you have questions about whether you can have friends over or whether you uh, should have 
Thanksgiving dinner alone or, or just whatever that might be, uh, your provider will know the context of what the risk factors are for COVID-19 in the area, what your health is, what your particular risk factors are. So our comments will be very general, but I think uh, there's no substitute for that provider-patient-family uh, discussion. And uh, telehealth is a very effective way to do that. So, uh, Carolyn, I'm going to stop there, and I'll look forward to our Q&A. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Crawford. That was really wonderful and really covered a lot of information for everybody and really set the context for today's program. So I thank you very much, and uh, I know there will be questions for you during the, during the Q&A. And our next speaker is Dr. Ruth Bergeron, and Dr. Bergeron is Professor of Medicine, Director, Center for Medical Humanities and Ethics, UT Health San Antonio. And Dr. Bergen is going to address what is antimicrobial resistance, or AMR, questions to ask your healthcare team about AMR, signs of infection, key questions to ask your healthcare team, parts of the body most likely to get infection, and communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns. And Dr. Bergen will also say a few words also about um, telehealth, telemedicine appointments. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Bergen. Well, hello, everyone. Um, appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today about antimicrobial resistance. Um, as an infectious disease doctor for uh, the last 30 years, I've been seeing patients both in the hospital and out of the hospital, um, and a lot of my patients are immunocompromised for various reasons. So I was asked to speak first about antimicrobial resistance, and the definition of that is the ability of a disease-causing microbe to develop a resistance to the effects of, an, of any antimicrobial medication. And we think of uh, four major classes of microbes. As an infectious disease specialist, I worry about viruses, bacteria, fungi or molds, and then more rarely in our country, parasites. But globally, parasites are a big issue. And the term antibiotic resistance is a little different than antimicrobial resistance because antibiotic resistance is a subset of the larger group of AMR. And in this instance, it is bacteria that are becoming resistant to the antibiotics. We have over 100 antibiotics, over 90 antivirals, uh, probably more than 14 antifungals, and I didn't even count how many antiparasitic drugs we have it's really important that we pick the right drug for the right bug. Um, most bacteria that are going to cause infection are treatable, but they just have to be treated with the right antibiotic at the right dose for the right duration of time. You can't just say, oh, I've got a fever or I have red skin, let me pull any old antibiotic off the shelf. Um, so a lot of what I do as an infectious disease doctor is help people figure out which drugs are going to work best for a particular type of infection. Now, before I go on, I want you to have a visual image in your mind. Imagine a forest, and in this forest, there are many wonderful and marvelous plants. There's big trees, and there's smaller uh, scrub bushes, and there's tiny little ferns and little flowers. And imagine that a noxious weed comes and is making this forest not thrive, and you want to get rid of the noxious weed. And you think about your options that you have, and one of them is just to take a blowtorch and burn down the entire forest. You will definitely get rid of the weed, but you will have caused irreparable damage to what was a thriving ecosystem. And that analogy may seem extreme, but when you consider that we have about 39 trillion bacterial cells in our bodies, 
just about the same number as human cells. We have about 30 trillion human cells. If we go in and try to blast away every germ that is living on or in our bodies, we're going to cause a lot of damage to the good and friendly bacteria, many of which have important functions and are there to keep us healthy. Some of our bacteria even produce vitamins like vitamin K in, in our guts. So we, when we have an infection, we don't want to get a blowtorch antibiotic that's going to knock out every single bacteria. We want a very, very specific weed killer. And uh, fortunately, we have uh, microbiology labs that can help us do that. And so when somebody has infection, depending on the site of the infection, we try to get a sample um, and grow up from the blood or the urine or pus or some piece of infected tissue, try to grow up whatever microbe we have in there and then do special testing to see which of our antimicrobials are going to do the best job and which ones are, are not going to be effective for that particular pathogen. Um, so worldwide, um, antibiotic resistance is becoming a real problem. And this is because microbes can change if they are exposed to antibiotics. Life finds a way. You've heard that said in a movie somewhere sometime. Um, and so if we use antibiotics incorrectly, um, the wrong drug at the wrong dose or the wrong duration of time, that can give a microbe a chance to have a genetic change and, and be modified so that they're no longer treatable. And this is becoming a serious problem. It can happen to anyone at any age in any country. It's not something that's particular to people with cancer. It's also something that can occur naturally. Um, some microbes are just naturally resistant to certain antibiotics or antimicrobials. But the misuse of antibiotics in humans and also in livestock has been accelerating this process. And so a growing number of infections, including pneumonia, tuberculosis, are becoming harder to treat as the antibiotics that are used to treat them become less effective. And this is obviously problematic for many reasons. When, when there's antibiotic resistance, that can lead to longer hospital stays, higher medical costs, and so on. Um, so how do, we, how do we avoid it, and what do we do about it? Um, first of all, people should never take antibiotics uh, without a prescription, and they should take them exactly um, as they have been prescribed, but with the caution of knowing that um, the drug may need to be adjusted. So we have different ecosystems in our bodies. For instance, on the skin, that's one type of ecosystem, and there's certain kinds of bacteria that we know commonly live there, and they usually don't cause trouble unless there's some disruption to the skin or some disruption to your immune system, such as can happen when you're on chemotherapy. But if the focus of the infection is in a particular place like the skin, then we know which antimicrobials to reach for first, and we try, based on what we know about what's normally causing a skin infection, to treat with usually one antibiotic, but if it's a very serious infection and if the person is very ill or very immunocompromised, we might use more than one. And then we do tests to see which one is going to be the most effective. And as time goes on, we go from a broad spectrum of antibiotics down to a more narrow one. So we start taking away the antibiotics that we figure out that we don't need. This is really important, and this leads me into 
the type of question that you could ask your healthcare team about antimicrobial resistance. So if you um, have a serious infection, you might notice that people are treating you very um, proactively with um, multiple different antimicrobials. Sometimes, you know, a cancer patient with a high fever and a very low white count will get antifungals and antivirals and several antimicrobials. But over time, you should see the number of antibiotics and antimicrobials being used uh, diminishing. So questions that you could ask your team is, um, am I taking the right drug or drugs for the right bug? You might ask, have we isolated a particular bacterium or a particular organism from my infection, and are we targeting that now? You could ask, how long do I need to be taking these antibiotics? It's very important that you learn the name of your antimicrobials and get it, keep, keep a record somehow, um, whether you use it on your, your smartphone, your, your device, or on your computer, or even just in a notebook, um, writing down the name of your antibiotic, when you started it, what your dosing regimen is, and how long you're supposed to be on it, that can really, really be helpful because sometimes people have a change in their status, uh, something else comes along, and it can help infectious disease specialists like me enormously if you um, have some of that history um, plotted out. And I, I tell you this now, and you, know, you get in, when, when you're sick, you don't usually have a lot of extra energy to be writing things down and taking careful notes, but hopefully somebody in your family or one of your loved ones or your caregiver will be able to help with that. And it is important to, to keep track of these things um, because as time goes on, we want to figure out, has this person been on too many antibiotics for too long and what do I need to stop and what do they really need to be taking right now? And then finally, you want to ask things like, is, is the dosing correct for my body? And we, we do have um, a doctor who's a, a pharmacologist that will be talking more about these sorts of things and, and our fondies are very, very helpful to us to make sure that we're giving the correct dose for people's body size, for their kidney function, for their liver function, um, and the drug-drug interactions um, that they may need to be worried about. So those are some of the questions that you can ask your healthcare team about antimicrobial resistance. And then I was asked to cover what are the parts of the body most likely to get infection and what key questions should you ask your healthcare team about signs? And I think taking those two together makes the most sense to me. Um, so many patients on um, cancer chemotherapy have some sort of a port um, in order to access uh, their veins, their central veins, to provide the, the treatment for the cancer. Um, sometimes those ports are um, underneath the skin and kind of tucked away, so they're very protected from getting infection. Sometimes people have, um, for temporary periods of time, a, a, what we call a, a PIC line, a peripherally inserted catheter, um, or some other sort of line. Sometimes people have venous um, access for, for dialysis while they're waiting to get um, more definitive access for dialysis. And these are all things um, that can get infected. And so um, you want to make sure you're not having pain or pus or redness um, that is around the entry point for wherever you're getting your intravenous medication. So another common site of infection will be the mouth, and that is because many kinds of chemotherapy um, can cause mouth sores, 
mucositis um, that kind of disturbs the ecosystem of the mouth. And not infrequently, if there are antibiotics and, and or immunosuppressive medicines such as steroids, uh, you can get a fungal infection in your mouth called candida or thrush. And so you might want to watch for the development of a white coating in the mouth, pain or difficulty swallowing. Uh, and those that would be a potential sign of infection that um, should lead you to alert your care provider. Um, other places where people are prone to get infection are the lungs. Very, very common. Um, as people age, uh, with waning immunity, pneumonia is common. You want to make sure that you've been vaccinated as appropriate to prevent a pneumococcal pneumonia. There are a couple of two different kinds of vaccines now that we give to prevent pneumococcal pneumonia. You want to make sure you have your flu shot. I think you'll hear more about that later. But one of the things that you can do to help prevent infection in the lungs, um, if you're a cancer patient, is to um, make sure that you are doing gentle exercise that helps you inflate your lungs. If you're too sick to get up and really mobilize to do exercise, um, if you're bed-bound a lot, there's a little device called an incentive spirometer, um, which you can use to help as you properly inflate your lungs. That can help diminish the risk that you're going to get infection as you're convalescing. Um, people may get infection in the urinary tract um, that is much more common in older people, particularly women and the menopausal, postmenopausal period, and preventing urinary tract infections um, is important, and you can do that by pushing fluids. It, and you really sometimes have to uh, drink more fluid than you think you need it and drink more than you're thirsty for just to make sure that your um, urine output is good. That's a specific recommendation for people that are prone to urinary tract infections. Um, abdominal infections, so that would be um, could be related to cancer or chemotherapy, but also antibiotics themselves can cause diarrhea. And there can be mild antibiotic-associated diarrhea that's just caused by the disruption of the ecosystem, but sometimes it can be more severe and we can get very serious antibiotic-associated diarrhea caused by a pathogen that we refer to as C. diff, and that one causes uh, bloody diarrhea and pain. And that is, you know, one reason why we're so careful about trying to taper down and use the most specific antibiotics possible And uh, because the more broad spectrum the antibiotic, the more likely it is we create such a disruption in the ecosystem of the gut that we get that bad bug called C. diff um, causing trouble for us. Um, and then finally, again, the skin, which we've talked about earlier, but I didn't say a lot about prevention there. Clearly, um, if you have a port um, and if you have any kind of uh, problem that's affecting your skin, you want to make sure that you're washing and keeping clean. And um, some people have recurrent staph infections that plague them. I see lots of people coming in for that in my outpatient infectious disease clinic. And so I coach them about how to um, choose a, a good antimicrobial soap. If you've really had recurring uh, staph infections, something like Hibiclens, chlorhexidine-containing liquid soap um, can be very, very helpful. So those are um, places in the body that are prone to get infected and some of the signs and symptoms. Remember that people with cancer or people who are immunocompromised sometimes don't have the same signs of infection as other people. It's possible to be pretty systemically ill as a cancer patient and not mount a fever. But typically you would have something that's not right, such as 
a feeling of achiness, um, shaking chills. I find that um, a lot of people are not quite in tune with the fact that having a full-blown shaking chill, what we call a rigor, um, with teeth chattering, that is not normal. If you're not if you're not standing out in a snowstorm, you should not be having a shaking chill like that. And if, if that is happening, it should be a sign to you that you want to call someone and tell them about it because it could mean that you've got bacteria or something in your bloodstream, and that's quite serious and is something that needs to get attention right away. So signs and symptoms of infection can be specific to the place that's infected, and remember that cancer patients may have less of the uh, fever warning signs um, than other people, so you need to be more in tune to things like lethargy. Oh, another place, um, part of the body that could be infected um, that you want to be wary of is is um, the central nervous system. So if a severe headache that's accompanied by sensitivity to the light with stiff neck and lethargy, um, this could be a sign of a serious infection in the central nervous system and um, would be something that you would want to let someone know about. A mild headache, you don't need to start worrying about that, but a really bad headache and trouble with uh, light sensitivity, that would be a warning sign that you'd want to tell someone about. And the last question I was asked to talk about is communicating with your healthcare team about quality of life concerns. And I guess um, I'm going to be looking forward to hearing what your questions are about quality of life concerns. But I, I do think that um, establishing a good rapport with your team, finding out the phone numbers of the people um, that are going to be available to take your calls is really, really important. Um, <clears throat> I know that my... Uh, LVN and my medical assistant um, really enjoy getting to know my patients, and um, when my patients call, uh, they they very much appreciate um, knowing the person on the other end of the line and and being able to talk about their particular question. Um, Some questions that I imagine might come up regarding quality of life for a cancer patient, you know, maybe about getting together with family, particularly in this COVID era. You know, can you get together with your grandchildren or your nieces and nephews. And, you know, if you are somebody who's getting chemotherapy, um, you probably want to limit your contact with small children, kids under six years old, and and really anyone who's got any symptoms of being sick. Um, People often have questions about can they eat whatever they want. And there are certain kinds of cancer patients, such as bone marrow transplant recipients, that for a very defined period of time need to avoid undercooked food, raw fruits and veggies. That's in the immediate you know, post-transplant period. Um, in general, about food, you want to eat a regular balanced diet. You know, there's a common myth about don't eat any sugar because it fuels cancer. This isn't really true. Everything in moderation, I think, is, is the thing that you want to focus on. Um, when you haven't been feeling well, you may have been struggling with nausea and vomiting, it can be possible that your diet isn't as complete as it used to be, and you want to have a a thoughtful review of that. And if you're not able to eat a lot of fresh fruits and vegetables from which we derive our important micronutrients and vitamins, you might need to be taking some vitamin supplements. And some of the ones you want to think about with respect to infectious disease include Uh, vitamin A, vitamin D, as in dog, in case you couldn't hear me, uh, and and vitamin C. And you don't have to take mega doses, but you want to make sure you're not becoming deficient in those. 
a micronutrient that's very helpful and has been talked about actually in the context of COVID as well is zinc and taking uh, an over-the-counter uh, zinc supplement, no, no different than what's on the label, is probably a good idea. Um, if you're worried about infection, there are also zinc lozenges, but make sure not to exceed the pack, package label anytime you're using any sort of micronutrient or, or vitamin supplement. Um, and, you know, finally, I just want to say I fully recognize that cancer affects all dimensions of your life. Um, infection is one of the problems that you can face. And in spite of the fact that we do have emerging antimicrobial resistance, there's an awful lot that can be done to prevent infection and also to manage infection correctly when it does happen. So thank you, and I'll turn my remarks back over to our moderator. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Bergman. That was really wonderful and just an excellent presentation and really, really made something that was very complex for people very understandable and giving them very specific tips. So I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. So thank you so much. And our next speaker is, uh, is Dr. Ashley Morris Engerman. And Dr. Engerman is a pharmacist, and she's a clinical pharmacist, um, Duke Health, Duke University Health System, um, clinical associate in the Department of Medicine, Duke University School of Medicine. And Dr. Engerman will be addressing the role of your pharmacist in infection control and awareness, vaccination and flu shots, working with your healthcare team, including your pharmacist, to prevent your risk of infection. It's now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Engerman. Thank you for the kind introduction. I'm happy to be participating um, in this conference today. I have worked as an oncology clinical pharmacist, specifically with adult bone marrow and stem cell transplant patients for nearly 30 years. Um, I'd like to start by discussing the role of the pharmacist in your care and how we work in conjunction with the rest of your healthcare team to optimize your treatment, including the prevention and treatment of infection. Many of you are likely familiar with pharmacists in your local retail pharmacy setting where you have your prescriptions filled. These pharmacists fulfill a very important role in terms of ensuring that you receive the correct medications at the correct dose. Furthermore, they're able to screen for drug interactions upon reviewing your comprehensive list of medications. In addition, pharmacists provide you with instructions on how to properly take your medications, and they can also alert you to specific side effects that may occur. In many hospital or clinic settings, and sometimes even in larger doctor's offices, there are pharmacists that provide direct care to oncology patients. These pharmacists are available to provide education on specific chemotherapy being given in addition to the supportive care medications that are being prescribed. Examples of supportive care medications include those that are used to prevent and treat infection, nausea and vomiting, pain, as well as other potential complications. Pharmacists may also help in the selection of medications to prevent and treat infections and in determining the optimal dosing of these agents. They routinely screen for allergies to medications, drug interactions, and monitor for treatment response, as well as side effects. Pharmacists are often involved in antimicrobial stewardship programs within an institution where they promote the optimal use of these anti-infective medications. 
The goal of these multidisciplinary teams is to prevent infections and also to improve the outcome of treatment for infection, to decrease the development of antimicrobial resistance, and to hopefully decrease the cost associated with care. I would now like to shift our focus to the use of immunizations or vaccines to prevent infections in cancer patients. There are several vaccines that may be recommended for oncology patients, so I would strongly encourage you to speak to your oncologist, your primary care physician, or your pharmacist regarding these recommendations. And Dr. Berggren alluded to some of these earlier during her presentation. The specific recommendations for which vaccines are needed may depend on your age, your prior immunization history, your risk factors for specific infections, and also whether or not you have already started treatment for your underlying disease. The recommendations may differ depending on the type of cancer treatment you are undergoing and whether or not you've had a bone marrow or stem cell transplant, as there are even more specific guidelines available for patients that are in that setting. Whenever possible, if a vaccine is needed, it is best to give it prior to starting treatment with chemotherapy and or radiation. The response to vaccines is expected to be more robust if they are given prior to starting cancer treatment compared to when they are given during or shortly after completing treatment. Depending on the type of vaccine, it would be optimal to administer it at least two to four weeks prior to starting cancer treatment. However, this is not always possible. Once cancer treatment has been initiated, patients may have a weakened immune system and they will not be able to mount a very strong immune response to a vaccine. And this can render the vaccine to be less effective. In some cases, it may be preferable to administer an, an activated vaccine during treatment rather than not at all. Live vaccines, however, such as the vaccine against measles, mumps, rubella, should be avoided during active treatment for cancer. It's recommended that the seasonal influenza vaccine or the flu vaccine be given to almost all adult oncology patients prior to or near the beginning of flu season. Although it may not be as effective when given in this setting, it may provide some protection. If the flu vaccine can be given at least two weeks prior to starting cancer treatment, this is preferable, but again, it is not always possible. If it needs to be given once cancer treatment has started, research suggests that the vaccine be administered about a week after the beginning of a chemotherapy cycle. In patients receiving treatment with rituximab or other B-cell antibodies, all vaccines should generally be withheld until at least six months after completion of therapy as a response would not be expected. While vaccination of patients is important, it's also critical to be sure that patients' family members and care providers are immunized as well. Household contacts of cancer patients should be encouraged to receive the seasonal influenza vaccine to help prevent the spread of flu to vulnerable patients. There are several types of influenza vaccines available. Cancer patients should receive an inactivated influenza vaccine as opposed to a live vaccine. Inactivated influenza vaccine is also the best choice for household contacts of cancer patients with compromised immune systems, 
and this is especially true for household contacts of bone marrow or stem cell transplant patients. The quadrivalent vaccine is recommended over the trivalent vaccine if it is available. Quadrivalent just means that the vaccine covers four strains of the virus, while the trivalent vaccine covers three strains. There's also a high-dose vaccine that is available, and this one is recommended for patients that are age 65 or older. Vaccines may be given at your oncologist's office, your primary care physician's office, your local health department, or your local retail pharmacy. Availability of vaccines may vary depending on the location, and state pharmacy laws also dictate which vaccines may be administered in a pharmacy setting and whether or not a prescription is required. Finally, if you're diagnosed with influenza or the flu, there may be medications available to help reduce the severity and duration of your illness. When these treatments are appropriate, it's best to start them within 24 to 48 hours from the onset of your symptoms. If you're exposed to someone with the flu, it may also be reasonable for you to receive medications that may help prevent you from coming down with the flu. Of course, it's always best to discuss these options um, for preventing or treating the flu and your need for any vaccines or other medications with your healthcare team. This concludes my prepared comments, so at this time I'll turn the program back over to our session moderator. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Engerman. That was really excellent and uh, very informative. And, um, and I'm going to say a few words about the services that people can access from Cancer Care. Um, so I'm Carolyn Messner. I'm an oncology social worker, and I'm director of education and training with Cancer Care. And so Cancer Care is a national organization and providing free programs and services to people uh, throughout the United States. And we have an, an 800, a HOPE line that people can call, or you can visit our website. Most of you who've registered for the program have all that information already. And when you get your um, evaluation at the end of the program, you'll be getting all that information as well. However, um, the services that you can access are a chance to talk with one of our oncology social workers on the telephone about any questions or concerns you may have. We also uh, offer a case management service program in which we can provide you linkages to different resources, just practical, uh, practical and financial assistance that you may require. We do have a very robust financial assistance program and copay uh, assistance program as well. We do offer many of these educational workshops, and offer a number of different publications as well. So, and of course, a very active website with lots of information. So um, it's just definitely, uh, for many people, a go-to place to go to get information, uh, to connect with uh, an oncology social worker, and to get the kind of assistance that you might need. Um, and if we don't have it, we'll definitely refer you to an organization that does have it. Now, before we take questions from a panel of experts, I do once again want to ask you three more polling questions just at the end of the program so that we are actually all um, get a sense of, of uh, what you've learned from the program today. So um, these will take a moment. So those of you who are live streaming the program, um, the first question is, as a result of this workshop, I have a better understanding of how to watch for, prevent, and manage infection. And it's either yes or no. And then the next question is, as a result of this workshop, I have a better understanding of antimicrobial infection, or AMR, yes or no? 
And then the last question is, as a result of this workshop, I have a better understanding of the role of the pharmacist in infection awareness and control, yes or no? Okay, well, I want to thank all of you for participating in this polling. And now um, we're going to move on and to our questions. And I'm going to ask Sonia to bring all of our speakers on board for the questions. And we're going to um, take as many of your questions as possible. So Sonia will explain to you how to queue up for questions, and we'll let the questions begin. Sonia? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star than one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to move yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit a question by clicking Ask a Question. Our first question comes from Corey N. Your line is now open. Thank you very much. Can you hear me? Yes, thank you. And your question, Corey, yes. Okay. About staph um, reinfection um, and hippoquins, is it possible that um, hippoquins is one of the, I guess, uh, the, uh, in a sense, uh, medications or, or maintenance uh, treatments uh, that will uh, eventually result in uh, staff, uh, I guess, resistance? Okay, thank you for that question. Dr. Berggren, could you address that question? Right. So, you know, there have been reports about um, topical soaps that de uh, for which certain um, bacteria do uh, develop resistance. But um, to date so far, um, this is not being widely used by everybody in the world, and it's, it's a little more expensive um, than most regular soap. And so we really haven't become aware of this as being a serious problem, and it's one measure among many that people need to take uh, to avoid staph reinfection. You know, some of them that I didn't mention include you know, if you are one of these people that keeps having recurrent boils and so forth, um, you want to make sure that your environment is clean, that you're not sharing you know, towels in a locker room with other people. Probably not much of that's going on during the COVID pandemic, but um, the, the point that I'm making is it's, it's your own skin, but also the, the things that are coming, you're coming into contact with in your environment. Um, and then there's there's other things that can be done as well, but frequent bathing and attention to cleanliness is important. Some, you may want to speak to your doctor about the possibility of adding a component to prevent further reinfection by using a prescription um, ointment called Bactroban or Mapiracin that, strangely enough, can, can be put in your nostrils um, on a daily basis to help cut down the colonization with a certain kind of staff called MRSA, and that that is something that you should do with consultation with, with your doctor. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and a question from um, another of our online participants, um, Dr. Bergen as well. Um, have you all noticed an increase in, with fungal infections with people with cancer? Um, well, yes, there certainly is uh, trouble with fungal infections, the most common one, of course, being um, with the oral thrush or candida, which if it doesn't get treated right away can go down into the swallow tube, your esophagus, and can be very painful there and cause people to not eat or drink. So you want to watch for that if you see, you know, white coating on the sides of your cheek or on your tongue. And usually that white stuff uh, scrapes off 
and that's a pretty good indicator that that's what it is. Um, but being on antimicrobials for a prolonged period of time, again, because it causes so much disruption of your natural ecosystem of your microbes, can create an environment that's favorable for a fungal infection. Prolonged periods of having low, low white blood count, what we call neutropenia, prolonged period of neutropenia um, that may or may not be accompanied by being on a bunch of antibiotics as well. This is a pretty big setup uh, for having a fungal infection, and that's why we have guidelines for people that are in the post-bone marrow transplant phase to be careful about not introducing um, fresh cut flowers and and fresh fruits and vegetables but that precaution you know is for a limited period of time for a very specific sector of the population not for everybody that's on this phone call so it is a concern it's something that we watch for but we've also had drug development and actually here in san antonio i'm working with a group that that has been very proactive in uh Dr. Tom Patterson and his group are, are very proactive in developing new drug combinations for managing serious fungal infections. So it's it's not hopeless. <laughs> That's it. That's all I have to say. Oh, excellent. Thank you. Um, and a question from one of our online participants for Dr. Crawford. If you are in remission and off chemotherapy, are you at any greater risk at contracting infections than the general population? Uh, I think it would de- it would depend on whether you had any other uh, illnesses, any other chronic illnesses that might predispose you, diabetes or um, heart disease or other things. But but in general, if the cancer is in remission, not active, you're not on active treatment, uh, we don't think that there should be an increased risk over um, other people in your same age group. Um, but having said that. Uh, we're all at risk for COVID-19, so you're not at a lower risk than the, the general public either. So, so you want to take the, the precautions you can, uh, the three Ws I talked about. Excellent. And a follow-up actually to your question, Dr. Crawford, as well, this question, what types of cancer are high risk for infections? Yeah, so uh, I mentioned this briefly, um, the uh, blood cancers, leukemia, lymphoma, myeloma, because they're the ones associated with, uh, both by the nature of their disease and the nature of the treatments, uh, tend to get prolonged low white blood counts Dr. Bergman was talking about. Uh, so that period of neutropenia um, it can lead to a significant risk of infection. Work we've done many years ago shows that for about every one day that you have a low white blood count, there's about a 10% risk of developing a fever and infection. So if you're going to have that for a week or longer, a very high risk of, of developing those complications. Now, among the solid tumors, the cancer with the highest risk is lung cancer. And we studied that as well, and there's probably a lot of different factors there, uh, higher uh, comorbidities, but in particular, uh, these tumors in the lung may predispose you to pneumonia. And one factor we found is that uh, because many people with lung cancer are smokers uh, in the past, they have chronic obstructive lung disease, and that particularly puts you at high risk of pneumonia. So lung cancer kind of stands out among the other solid tumors as, as perhaps the highest risk for infection. And another question for you, Dr. Crawford. Our bodies are so different after chemo, surgery, radiation, and hormone therapy. From This is from the, um, one of our participants saying this. Um, what are the main symptoms to look for as signs of infection? 
Well, I, I think it depends on the setting, but fever, uh, as Dr. Bergen said, patients with active cancer or otherwise impaired immune systems may not always mount a fever, but if you've recovered uh, from the cancer and are no longer on steroids or other medicines that might mask fever, uh, fever is a very good sign. And, just, and also just feeling poorly. If you just suddenly, after feeling pretty well, feel very lethargic, no energy, uh, certainly a, a, an infection may well be lurking, and that, that would be something to look for. Excellent. And um, thank you. A question for Dr. Berger, and these are really great questions, I have to say. A very, very wonderful audience, I must say, and great speakers as well um, for Dr. Berger. Would mouthwash like Listerine help to prevent candida or thrush infection in a patient going through chemotherapy? Do you recommend mouthwash during chemo treatment? Could you comment on that, um, Dr. Berger? Well, what I would say is that a good oral hygiene is very important. And, um, you know, you, you you should do what you're being guided to do and do it meticulously. Um, Listerine is one option. Sometimes we use um, a different kind of mouthwash that's a prescription strength. There's a brand Peridex mouthwash that has a little bit stronger antimicrobial effect. And that's really more directed against the oral anaerobes, those nasty little bugs that cause that bad smell down underneath the, underneath the gums. Um, but just oral hygiene in general is a good idea and um, being vigilant to watch for development of mouth sores or, or white stuff in your mouth and, and bringing that to the attention of your care provider is very helpful. Don't forget to brush your teeth. <laughs> Excellent. And uh, a question for Dr. Engelman. Um I heard that I shouldn't take over-the-counter medicines for fever. Why is this the case? Dr. Engelman, if you could comment on that. Well, I think it's always a good idea to check with your healthcare team. Um, many of the chemotherapeutic agents can also reduce your platelet count, um, and platelets are the blood cells that help to clot the blood or prevent bleeding. Many of the over-the-counter um, medications, such as ibuprofen and naproxen, can increase the risk of bleeding because they affect how well the platelets can work. So if you have a very low platelet count, you can increase the risk of bleeding um, by taking some of the over-the-counter medications. One of the other concerns, too, um, just some of the underlying cancers can also result in um, kidney damage, and some of these over-the-counter medications can actually worsen that. So it is a good idea you know, to talk with your provider to see what they would recommend um, in terms of um, fever reducers or pain reducers, um, you know, Tylenol or acetaminophen is an option. But I know, you know, sometimes, especially in the bone marrow transplant setting, we often don't want our patients taking um, acetaminophen either due to um, drug interactions or because we really need to know, you know, if they're running a fever so that we can determine, you know, if they have signs or symptoms of infection. So just a good idea um, to check with your healthcare team. Excellent. Thank you. And um, probably our last question, are, um, and this for Dr. Crawford, are pets safe to have in the house? My mother is coming to live with us for a while, but we have two dogs that go out to walk every day. Would it be safe for her? Do you want to comment on this? Wow. 
complex. I may need a helpline with Dr. Bergeron or somebody here, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. so. She's talking about pets that she has. Her mother's now coming into her house. Is that the question? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So I think you know, obviously, there's a risk just in general uh, uh, as we introduce new people into our environment. Uh, that there's a risk of infection, uh, there's a risk for the, from the environment and the change of location. So I think there's a uh, some of a concern. But I think if, if the dogs are well-groomed and, you know, healthy, I, I don't think uh, uh, it's a major factor. But I guess it's something you have to take into account. So, Dr. Bergen, how would you answer that? Well, so I agree with everything that you said, Dr. Crawford. I will tell you from experience, I, I took care of a wonderful lady who lived to be a hundred years old. Um, but darn it, if she didn't get bitten by her cat about every six months. Um, and I don't know what it was about this lady and her cat. I kept trying to tell her to get rid of the cat and she wouldn't hear of it. She said that was just out of the question. So I had to treat her for a cat bite. I don't know how many times. Um, so that's one thing is just to be careful about bites and older people. Um, in this story, I'm not sure who had the cancer, if it was the daughter who's accommodating the mom that's coming to visit or the mom that's coming to live is, is suffering from cancer and, and possibly immunocompromised. But anyway, animal bites, watch out for those. And then new puppies are a classic association for diarrheal illness, and they can be associated with a bacteria called Campylobacter. So if you're going to have a new puppy um, and there's somebody who's immunocompromised in the home, uh, that person should be careful not to let the puppy lick them and not to you know, get the dog licking their face um, and just be careful and mindful of hygiene. Um, and then the last infection we think about with pets and immunocompromised people is a parasite called toxoplasmosis, um, which can be associated with kittens. Um, it's not associated with mature cats. And it turns out that if you're very meticulous about changing your kitty litter, every day or every other day, you'll never get toxoplasmosis because the um, the parasite has to go through its life cycle and it won't have a chance to do that if you're frequently changing the kitty litter. But um, my final word on that one is have the least immunocompromised person in the house um, be the one with the assignment of changing the kitty litter and just keep it clean. Excellent. Thank you. Well, this has been an extraordinary call. I must say that uh, both our participants asking such great questions and our speakers have just been phenomenal in this particular program today. And this is a program I'll definitely want to repeat again. Um, and we also could go on for quite a bit more time because there are many more of you in queue. Um, so um, I want to kind of, we said it would be an hour program, and so we would like it to be an hour program. So I want to thank our speakers. I want to thank our participants. I also um, want to remind all of you that you do have access to a lot of services, um, both your healthcare team, of course, all these questions that you've asked today, please take them back to your healthcare team and ask your healthcare team because they, of course, know you the best. Also, um, you will be getting um, a, uh, an evaluation after the program, SurveyMonkey. It will include all the resources that were mentioned during the program today um, with phone numbers, websites, even things that weren't mentioned today that you'll have at your fingertips. And most importantly, we, as we conclude the program today, we would not want any of you to feel alone um, in coping with cancer and thinking about preventing and managing infection um, in adults living with cancer. Um, we want you to know that you're now part of a community of support. We're all here to help you from your healthcare team 
um, to um, our staff at Cancer Care, and to your healthcare team, of course, consists of many, many people, many different disciplines. And um, so if you're having any concern, bring it to your healthcare team because they, um, it may be that members of your team could also help you with your questions. So I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.